I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Hello, my guest today is Dr. Tylon Ildiz from Istanbul, Turkey. Tylon is the deputy chair of the Good Party, where he is responsible for communications and technology affairs. Istanbul is the only city in the world that sits on two continents, Europe and Asia. Walking through the old city, you are immersed in an exhilarating kaleidoscope of smells, sounds, and colors and they spark all of your senses. Evident throughout Istanbul and Turkey are the cultural influences of the many empires that once ruled this gateway to the east. You can see remnants of the Roman and Egyptian and Christian eras as you walk through the Blue Mosque, Tokapi Palace, and the Grand Bazaar. And long before these warring cultures took turns invading this beautiful country, while humans were still nomadic, the first human town formed in the southern Anatolian plateau around 7500 BC or 11,000 years ago. For all of these reasons and more, Turkey and most notably Istanbul holds a very special place in my heart. Yet Turkey, like many progressive democratic countries, is at a critical turning point. Prior to entering into politics, Tylan was at Google in the Silicon Valley for 10 years. At Google, he built novel measurement methodologies and managed a team of PhD-level statisticians who built these tools for Google and its advertisers. Tylon was responsible for approving all global third-party advertising research studies paid for by Google. He also led executive-level meetings with top global advertisers to build custom and scalable research solutions on media planning, measurement, and customer insights. I've invited Tylon today to discuss and help us understand three topics. Turkey, the political environment, and what inspired him to leave his 10-year career at Google and return with his family to Turkey. Second, behavioral economics. Are there similarities between buying an expensive handbag and voting for or supporting a politician? And third, U.S. politics and relations with Turkey. I've asked Tylon to share his insights regarding our current political environment and Turkey's. When we are in the West thinking about Turkey, what does Tylon want us to know? What are our similarities and our differences? Tylon, welcome to the call. I'm so excited to talk with you today. There's been quite a bit about Turkey in the press, and I just really wanted to hear from somebody from Turkey that can help us understand what's going on. But before we go there, would you tell us how did you get to the United States? Because you're born in Turkey, right? Yeah, I was born and raised in Turkey and I did my undergrad in Turkey as well. I studied industrial engineering and then I did the first two years of the PhD program in the University of Massachusetts and, you know, supply chain management. 
and got my master's there and then moved to Stanford for a PhD. So that's how I ended up, you know, coming to the U.S. Oh, okay. And then did you uh, join Google right after your Stanford PhD? Exactly. Actually, there's like three months overlap in which I was trying to wrap up my thesis. So it was even before I graduated, basically. I, I couldn't wait to start. I was like kidding the candy store. Oh, I bet. How long ago was that now? 2007. So I, I worked at Google for over 10 years. Uh, this, yeah. And it, with dog years, it's like 70 years, you know, in technology world, it's a lot of time. Yes, it is. And you are married and you have two children? No, I don't have children. I'm married. And it's actually in my development plan for 2019. And I was hoping to do it last year, but it turns out you can't do it over, you know, cell phone because I was traveling to Turkey so much. I didn't even get the chance to actually much with my wife. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's a problem. I sent a lot of hearts to them. Yes, <laughs> I bet. Well, your wife is extremely patient and understanding. She is because she's just as much, you know, passionate about Turkey and politics and, you know, creating a democracy for all, for all of us to enjoy as much as I am. So that, that's the reason. You were at Google for over 10 years. And tell us a little bit about what you did at Google. Well, you know, Google makes money by selling advertising which is, you know, when, you, when people are typing stuff on Google search bar and you see these little ads on the right and left or you see ads on YouTube, I basically build tools, advertising measurement tools to help advertiser understand whether they're getting their money's worth from Google, whether they're making sales, whether they actually are helping their brand equity go up and so forth. So there's a lot of big data analysis and mathematical mambo jumbo, basically. That's what I've been doing over there. Mm, okay. And you really grew their revenues quite a bit over those 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I want to think so at least. <laughs> yes. So you've been there 10 years. You had a great job. Google appreciated you being there and you, you enjoyed it. What was it that had you go back to uh, Turkey and leave California? Well, the thing is, I mean, uh, I was pretty comfortable at Google. I loved my job. Plus, uh, my bosses were always really great in giving me flexibility to do, to do whatever I wanted. And actually, uh, I took a few leave of absences from Google over the past like four or five years and came to Turkey whenever there was an election. I would try to help out the opposition parties and so forth just to help Turkish democracy. And the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to do is my specialty is in you know, optimal product design and marketing and customer segmentation and so forth. And we were doing it for, for like dandruff shampoo at Google. And I thought like, why not do it for politics, right? Because at mm. the end of the day, you're actually selling something to an audience and you want to know exactly what to say and when to say it and how many times to say it. So it's a pretty similar problem. And I have some experience in that domain. And as you know, politics is going very much into the realm of digital world in which I have some experience. And so I thought, you know, I might be quite helpful, you know, in actually bringing my, you know, democracy agenda to Turkish politics. And I also looked around, I looked my, my right, I looked at my left, I didn't see anybody who volunteered to do this stuff. I mean, I wish they did. And, you know, I actually went on with my life and you know, kept riding my motorbike and so forth, but that was not going to happen. So I'm like, okay, it landed on me. So, uh, so I had to do it. So I quit. 
I see. Your wife is also from Turkey, is that right? Yes, she, she is also from Turkey and she's working right now as well in our political party, you know, trying to help with the local elections right now. We have mayoral elections coming up in a couple of months. So she is working on that as well. So help us understand what the, what politics looks like in Turkey. When you mention an opposition party and a democracy, how many parties are there? Well, I mean, the, there are several parties. There are more than 10 parties, but the most prominent ones are like, there are five of them that are really prominent. And the one thing I would like, you know, our audience to realize is that Turkish democracy has been deteriorating over the past years. And the separation of powers actually have been deteriorated almost to non-existence. Right now we have a, you know, much more strict regime in which the, the judiciary, you know, arm of the government has been in total control. And then you can actually see in all of these independent evaluations of Turkish, you know, judicial independence. And we don't even rank in the first top hundred in the world right now, like Uganda and so forth are actually ranking better than us. And we have Wikipedia that's banned, believe it or not. Like, you know, there if you no know, issues actually have been uh, happening and the you know, judicial system is uh, being oppressed. So, you know, that's not the way to run the country, obviously. And that's one of the reasons why I want to actually start a form of an opposition party to actually change the course of the, you know, political agenda right now. Does that make it difficult for you or dangerous for you? Yeah, a lot of people say that, but um, I mean, we have one life and I guess you you make whatever you make of it and that I feel like is the best way for me to spend it, honestly. I mean, we could have, you know, <laughs> drink, you know, coffee and Phil's coffee and that's like fantastic. And we can build a lot of companies over there, but the experience that I'm having right now and the impact that I hope I'm making here, like is very rewarding, emotionally speaking. Mm -hmm. obviously it's dangerous and in that sense i get it and it's not to say that i'm not scared sure i am like everybody is but i guess being courageous it means it doesn't mean that you're not scared it means you're doing it in spite of the fact that you're scared that's what i'm trying to do yeah thank you for that i know yesterday president trump threatened turkey with economic devastation if they hurt the kurds could you tell us a little bit about who they are and what he meant and the impact that it has on you? Well, the thing is, uh, I don't think there's a lot of impact on Turkish political agenda. These things actually, you know, happen in waves in every few weeks, maybe every month now. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, our president and their president have been, you know, going back and forth to actually set some uh, local agenda push forward because whatever he's saying over there, Mr. Trump is saying over there, doesn't have much impact uh, in the political discourse in Turkey. And I believe like he's actually doing it to actually impact the local agenda in the US. Like I'm talking about President Trump. And whenever mm -hmm. our president says something, it actually has to do with trying to influence the local electorate in Turkey. It doesn't, he, you know, he knows it's not really going to make any difference in the US-Turkish relationships you know, in the mid to long term. So it, that's super irrelevant. Like if you look at all these things that have been happening over the past six months within the US, the shelf life is a couple of weeks tops. And this will be forgotten as well in a couple of weeks, I bet you. 
Well, that's good. I'm actually glad to hear that. Turkey is an amazing country, a beautiful country. I don't know how many people are aware, but the first town is actually located in Turkey. About 11,000 years ago was the first human town in southern Turkey on the Syrian border. Göbekli Tepe, yeah. Well, one of these days I'm going to go visit. Yeah, we would love to host here, actually. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's and Istanbul is such a beautiful city. You're very active on Twitter and um, Instagram and Facebook. You seem to visit a lot with universities and young people. Yep. Uh, like reminds me of a story basically like in the 1950s like mm-hmm. the Madison Avenue which is like the heart of you know advertising in the US so they basically find this niche segment to advertise and then people call these people you know geniuses and that niche segment was women and b- because like before that like people didn't think about advertising to women which was like 50% of the population and it was mm-hmm. because women were like housewives and so forth and men held the economic economic power so they did not really think about like you know targeting women directly so we have a similar situation in turkey and perhaps even like in in the u.s to lesser extent in which like half of our electorate is you know young like you know half of turkish population is less than 31 years old and half of the electorate is less than 40 years old but none of these parties have anything to say about these young people so i'm trying to be their voice and I'm trying to talk to them in a way that they would understand. And we use like social media in a way that's like really familiar to them. I try to play like e-games, like Counter-Strike and so forth, in which they can actually see themselves in me. So that makes me more relatable to them. And secondly, you know, political system is very corrupt, like like anywhere in, in the world. You know, Turkey is no exception. But I realize that it's corrupt uh, because of the people who are like older, because the young people are very idealistic and, and they really want to make the country a better place because at the end of the day, they're going to live there. And they actually cannot live off of government stipends and you know social welfare because they need to get married and so forth. And that's not a way to actually uh, start your life. So they really need a country that actually produces stuff that creates, you know, uh, value-added goods. So they're really open to our messages. But what happens is, like, when you put these young kids into the political parties, they see that, like, nothing is happening for them, and people are using the system to their advantage. So after they're, they're 30, 35 year old, years old, they get discouraged, which is really bad. So what I'm trying to do is actually get them at a very young age and give them hope that it doesn't have to be that way. And then hopefully once we actually start our youth movement, these people are going to be really energetic about the new way of leadership that that we're trying to bring to bear. That makes total sense now. And I will absolutely put links to your Twitter and Instagram and um, Facebook sites. Yeah, that makes total sense because you're traveling around Turkey and you're going to universities and what other places do you go to? Well, the thing is, one thing that I realized is uh, people mm-hmm. like me, like who've been abroad and who've been uh, rather you know, or somewhat successful in life, we want to come back to, the, to Turkey, to our hometowns, to our home countries, wherever that may be. And we want to be 
ministers, prime ministers, and we want everybody to give us, you know, a responsibility and rights and everything and the people and money so that we can actually do stuff. That's the fantasy land. But that's not how it happens in real world. Number one, you know, I don't think it's fair to all these people who have been in the country and working their, you know, butts off uh, in the political discourse to understand people. So that's number one. And number two, when you come from the top and when somebody places you to a position uh, where you don't really understand your base enough, then it's very hard for you to actually uh, last long. So what mm -hmm. I realized what I have to do is not to play, you know, play that role in which you know, I got put to a high position and that's what I'm going to do. I really want to be with the people and for the people. So I started uh, you know, going and talking with farmers, with all these you know, agricultural facilities. I bring youth to all these, to harvest you know, crops and so forth. We go to fisheries and whatnot. I, I play some Turkish you know, instruments in the coffee shops where all these elderly people hang out. So I'm trying to do all these things to basically, number one, understand Turkey a little better. And number two, explain myself to them because there are a lot of misconceptions, especially for somebody who has spent 16 years abroad. Obviously, my uh, enemies, I would say, which is like all these people who don't want me to be successful, they're trying to frame me as being a, like a Google CIA project, literally. Like, mm. like I'm a spy mm. who's trying to actually divide Turkey into whatever, uh, you know, some really outrageous claims that they do. And I, I sue them and whatnot, but still a lot of people who wouldn't know me, you know, these things might stick because there are a lot of stereotypes about, you know, people who lived in the U.S. and they're trying to use that against me. I really admire your commitment to your country. It would be so much easier for you to stay in the U.S. and have your job at Google. <laughs> are you kidding me? Of course. And the, the last news that they told about me was a Google gave me voter data from Turkey, give it to me in a USB stick, and I put it on my, you know, pocket, and then I brought it to Turkey. So, you know, they, they make up stuff like this. <laughs> I don't know what to say. And I mean, it doesn't discourage me, but certainly it actually hinders our process because some people believe it. Plus, worse than that, it's basically, okay, you know, I, I have done that, I'm crazy enough, but a lot of people who see me getting all these heat from you know, these people, they get discouraged and they wouldn't come back ever. Why would they want to you know, put up with this stuff? Mm -hmm. They have spent all their life studying, you know, being really you know, hardworking and so forth and being patriotic. And many of these people would come to Turkey with like no money or getting like a lot of pay cuts to serve their country. But getting this label of being spy or whatnot is like, one hurdle too far that it discourages people so uh, it's really sad like it's really sad what is your vision for yourself over the next five years well i mean uh, there are a few things but the most important is this so in turkey and perhaps in the u.s as well uh, i see that there are four tracks that actually make you become a politician and when people see these politicians they put these in these buckets. So the first bucket is the bureaucracy bucket in which you go through the ranks of the government 
So you're basically a government employee and you become this top official, like deputy secretary of state or whatever. And then from then they take you and they make you a minister. They make you, uh, you know, name parliament member and so forth. So that's like one route. The second route is you start really young and you start like painting walls and so forth in a political party and you move up the ranks in the party and you become something in the political discourse. So this is, this is the second um, route. And the third route is you are a landowner and when you're a landowner, you know, you have these block votes, maybe, you know, wherever you have land, there are all these villagers and then, you know, you can actually carry those votes and you become a political, you know, uh, force, so to speak. So that's the third route. And the fourth route is you have millions and millions of dollars. You have your TV stations and so forth. And you say, hell with this, you know, I'm going to run for, you know, president. I'm going to run for, you know, prime minister, whatever. So those are the four routes. But my route is a little different because I'm somebody who, who's somewhat successful, like who has been, you know, who has graduated from the best schools in Turkey, went to US, did all these stuff. And I don't have like millions and millions of dollars to spend in this thing. And I don't even have my family set up. I haven't retired, nothing. And it doesn't make sense for anybody why I would actually stop everything in the middle and come back to Turkey to do politics. So that doesn't fit into any of their political stereotypes. So what I'm trying to do is like, if I somehow become successful, then it's gonna open the fifth avenue for a political track, which means a lot of people who have my trajectory, and these are the people who are like the top one or 0.1% of Turkey, they actually would find a chance for them to actually join in the political discussion which means that people who are smarter than me, more handsome than me, have better careers, they would actually come because they'll see hope. So what I'm trying to do is, you know, uh, to set an example with me and by me uh, in order for, you know, them to actually get encouraged to actually join in this political movement. Mm -hmm. Well, you raise a, a really good point. And how do you make a living if you're not making a living as a politician and you're no longer working at Google? <laughs> Good question. I'm not. So, so I, I don't. And I, I guess, you know, I have to start, you know, doing consulting and whatnot and potentially globally. I don't know. I haven't really had a chance to think that through. And obviously, like, you know, I have to start doing it soon. But uh, this was taking, you know, maybe 18 hours of my day. So I didn't get a chance to sit down and think like, you know, what I should do. And we'll see how that goes. Hopefully in a few months, I'll sit down and, you know, start sorting those things out. And maybe in a year, I'll start making some money. We'll, see. well and you've been in Turkey now for how long? Well, 14 months, maybe. Like last year, August, uh, I came over to Turkey. But then when I came over, my house was there, my cars, my motorbike, everything was there. I just came with my two luggages and my wife moved in like two weeks afterwards. The house opened, we didn't sell our cars, nothing. It was really hard. And we just actually, you know, shut down the house and, you know, moved here for good. Well, we're going to miss you in California. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'll come back and forth. And especially if I do consulting and whatnot and 
Also, I might actually teach some executive education at Stanford. So uh, we'll talk about that, you know, for the summer semester. We'll see how that goes. If that happens, you know, I'll come over over summer. Oh, excellent. Do you see prospects for teaching at a university in Turkey? I do, yes. And I have some curriculum already about some, you know, marketing stuff. But again, those things take time. And I have none. Um, I have none. But once these things ease up, I love teaching so much. I I really do. And I I always have great times with, you know, MBAs and undergrads and so forth. And I I had some... you know, guest lectures at Stanford, at UCLA, at USC, in which it always has been fantastic. And I might actually do some TV programs over here as well. So there's some interest in, you know, me going on TV regularly to talk about technology, entrepreneurship, and education. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that would be exciting. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, and maybe you could put on your teacher hat for us, is around behavioral economics. I recall when we met at Google, you shared with me the work that you were doing at Google and the successes that you had. What concepts or mental maps do you draw from when you're influencing buying behavior? There is a lot, but the the thing is like with this new big data stuff, so one of the things that happens is you have so many variables that go into a buyer's decision and you don't now have to know exactly how, how you end up predicting buyer behavior because you have millions and millions of different variables that go into it. But machine learning algorithms end up producing a result in which you can actually predict what they're going to do next. It's like a closed box and you don't really understand how it happens, but it does. So, you know, that, that's one. But behavioral economics is very important I'll give you an example, right? So there's a thing called, you know, anchoring in which if you're, for example, selling a jersey and the jersey has the number 98 on it, people bid higher on it than if the jersey said 13 because 98 anchors you to a higher, you know, number. And it's very hard for your brain to pull it back to a lower number. You know, there are things like that that, you know, people do all the time. And I mean, if you have more specific questions, I'm happy to, happy to answer. It's just, this is such a deep subject that we might run out of time. For the entrepreneur or for the business person who's a leader, how would they use behavioral economics in their leadership style? First of all, you have to understand that like, people are not machines, right? Which means different people have different risk tolerances. That also means that for some people, you have to reward people with risk. Some people, you have to reward you know, people with sure bets. Actually, my PhD thesis was on it in which I was trying to characterize people's risk-seeking behavior. And a- as a leader, what you have to understand is, especially typically, uh, we do this at Google a lot too, you know, we uh, manage teams that are cross-cultural. Some cultures are asking cultures and some cultures are telling cultures right so in some cultures you have to tell people and then you expect them to push back at you if they don't agree but in some other cultures they would never do that to you so you have to actually ask them what to do and you have to understand their risk behavior in order for you to compensate them 
properly. So that's one of the ways in which like behavior economics, you know, really kicks in. And we use that all the time in order to give, deal with their, you know, day-to-day issues. That's number one. And we do that a lot in when you try to create markets. For example, Tinder is a very, very good example for that. And that that's basically what that does is social engineering because it uh, takes into account behavioral economics, which is you have a cost for rejection. But what Tinder does is called the double opt-in strategy in which you only see outcomes that are favorable. You can swipe right for people you like and you never see people who actually dislike you. But Mm -hmm. imagine you actually end up going to a bar and you're telling 50 girls that, you know, would you like to you know, have a drink with them and then you get rejections 49 of the time, right? Uh, you should be okay with like, you know, one because all you need is one, but there is a behavioral cost to getting rejected 49 times. And Tinder actually solved that problem with double opt-in market in which you only see if the other person says yes to you back. So those are the things that you can actually use in order for you to be able to uh, create a product that people will end up using. Interesting. (laughs) That's really interesting. How do you use behavioral economics in the work that you're doing in politics? Oh, that is everything. Everything. I mean, that is everything because number one, voting behavior has very little to do with rational decisions. Even the uprisings for democracy and so forth anywhere in the world, that is not a rational decision. That's a heart-based decision because the heart wants to be free. That, that is an emotional decision. So we're trying to play into people's hearts, number one. I mean, people give this example, and I really like, if you basically become a Christian and then read the Bible, you'll really agree with it. But if you first read the Bible, then decide to be a Christian, you're less likely to agree with it. So hmm. what you're trying to do in politics is, is to actually have people believe in you first, which means you have to speak to their hearts. And then you can actually sell your vision of like, you know, how to go about uh, changing the country for the better. Mm. So that's really, you know, how we are also trying to, you know, influence our voter base. First, win the hearts, then win the, the minds. Hearts and minds. Yeah, that's a great story. Thank you so much for that. I know you've had a really long day, so I just have a couple of questions for you. One of them is, how do you keep your positive attitude when you're receiving so much uh, criticism and so many obstacles along the way? Obviously, I get a lot of criticism, but I get like maybe 10 times more Mm. favorable you know support messages and so forth people stop me on the street they tell me like how much they appreciate me coming and so forth and one thing that's really important is in this capitalistic world and that would be very true in the u.s as well if you set out to do something that is not financially motivated people really love it and they really want to bend over backwards to help you but if I were in this like for money, then I wouldn't find anybody to support me, honestly. But because they know that I'm actually doing this in you know, out of you know patriotic you know intentions, 
a lot of people say, hey, you know what, I have this car that, you know, uh, we, we might, you know, use it for campaigning. Here's, I have like 10 hours in a week. I can help you with your social media. Here's five hours. I can help, you know, your creative work. There's so many people that want to help. It's like really touching. That's number one. And number two, and because there, there has been a huge, you know, brain drain in Turkey, like last year, uh, 250,000 people of very high caliber actually have left Turkey. Mm. And Istanbul is like one of the top five cities that have uh, lost uh, people with high net worth, which means like over $1 million net worth and more. And it's like one of the worst five cities in the world right now, which is Istanbul. Everybody is leaving the country. And me coming back actually gave hope to a lot of people who either did not want to leave the country or wanted to leave the country and couldn't. So what they're telling me is, oh, you know what, please do not leave. We, we get it. Like, you know, they're really uh, not being, you know, treating you fairly and so forth. But what, what are we going to do if you left? You are the only one who actually came over and who is literally, you know, trying to, you know, save the country. So you know that kind of support is really amazing like uh, you can't put any money you know monetary mm-hmm. value to it no amount of millions of dollars you know can do it so i i really love that stuff mm. oh, oh i can tell 20 years ago did you think you would be a politician yeah i did i mean 35 years ago i, I thought i was going to be a politician as well oh no kidding no, no, no. I mean, I, I can send you a couple of pictures in which like, you know, I'm in this, you know, pre- preschool. I'm like three years old and I'm holding the banner of the preschool in one of those parades. Like I'm in the front, like running. It's just, you know, I always thought like I would do something similar to this at, at some point in my life. And it seems to suit me, you know, pretty well. Oh, uh, absolutely. You have high influence. Well, yeah, I, I, I like the idea because it has psychology in it. It has analytics in it. You know, it has sociology. It has planning. It has drama. I mean, it has visuals. It has audio. It has music in it. I mean, who would have thought, like, you know, my music career. I mean, I'm a musician, too. Like, albeit, you know, yeah, amateur, but still I'm a musician. And all these instruments that I end up playing help me a great deal in connecting with people. I actually use a lot of things that make me who I am. Like at Google, me being a musician didn't make any difference, right? I mean, I love Google, but I could use like, you know, 20% of who I am at Google. Now I'm using like 100% and, and 100% is not enough. So I have to actually take drama classes so that I can use my 120% to learn new skills to be successful at this. You just reminded me of something that you told me when we met at Google. I don't know if you remember this. We were talking about purpose. Do you remember what you told me? No. What did I say? You said, Google has never asked me once what my purpose is. Yeah, that, that is true. That <laughs> is true. Like many, many companies don't. And I think, you know, they're going to actually realize that uh, unless you actually align people with what their purposes are, uh, they're not going to be actually utilizing people at their best. Many of the friends that I know, 
they could actually be 10 times more productive at Google. And now the Google stock would be maybe 10 times higher had they actually worked on things that they really genuinely cared about. Mm, that is so wonderful. Well, I hope there are people from Google listening. What's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier? If someone's livelihood depends on not understanding something, then they're not going to understand it. Which means, like, I'm trying to do all the right things, and I have tried to do all the right things at Google as well, sometimes, you know, to a fault. But then certain people, their livelihood, they're able to, to make money depending on not understanding it. So I couldn't explain it to them, and I was so frustrated. And very similar things happen at po politics as well. When you're trying to tell them this is not the way to do it, if it's actually threatening their status and so forth, then they're not going to understand it. So then there's no really a reason why you should pull your hair. And it's, it's not you. It's just their livelihood depends on not understanding this. So mm. I think that's one, one of the things that I, yeah, I really like to you know, live by. And another thing I live by is uh, there's a French, you know, idiom, I guess. It says, to know all is to forgive all. Mm. You know, w which basically tells me no matter how angry I might be at somebody, if I knew everything about that person, I mean, that's their genetics, their upbringing, like what they have gone through yesterday, last year, their insecurities and everything. It is, you know, to know all things about the person is going to let me, you know, forgive anybody. So mm -hmm. that's the way I'm trying to look at it. And that's like this extreme, you know, exercise for empathy. Mm. Yes. Oh, that, that's wonderful. Thank you. I wonder what insight you have into two countries. You know, ours is probably the newest and yours is one of the oldest. Why are they going towards less democracy? Arguably, some pe I'm sure a lot of people will disagree, but why are we having such difficulties now? Well, um, I think there are several reasons. And one of the reasons is, so before democracy and prosperity, okay? They used to be in the same place because what happens is democracy tells you that when you distribute the information, it's more effective to manage that information and it creates a better market outcome. So if you want to be rich, you also want to support democracy. So there is no uh, ethical dilemma over there. But now what's happening is even in autocratic regimes, like, you know, imagine China, you know, it's like, you know, worse than our country or, you know, in the U.S. Basically, it's state-owned. And then there's a lot of decisions that are made by, an, by the state and for the people. But with the help of these, you know, computers and so forth, now you can actually process information much more effectively and efficiently than you could do before, which means you can actually create prosperity but with less degrees of democracy. But now the idea is, okay, which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose your freedom or are you going to choose prosperity? Mm. And a lot of people now are facing with that dilemma before it was really easy. You didn't want a tyrant because it's going to run down the country. You know, think about the old Soviet regime, right? Old mm -hmm. Cuba and whatnot. Like, you know, you would have a lot of surpluses. You will have a lot of shortages because one person cannot really control everything. But now when you make 
you know, artificial intelligence your slave, then you don't really need a lot of people to make those smart decisions to create prosperity for the people. So now it's much easier for these tyrants actually to try to take hold on the, on, on the society. And they're playing a lot. So another reason is they're playing to the fears of people, especially in the times of globalization. People are actually trying to hold back to their nationalistic thoughts as mm-hmm. if it is something that you know they can actually revert back. And this is basically talking to their primal fears. I and mean, all of us have primal fears. And if you don't really educate yourself, it's very easy to you know fall prey to those fears, which is what a lot of countries are doing right now. And I think that's one of the drawbacks of a capitalistic system in which the, you know, the inequality you know, is going to increase every year and every decade. It's going to increase more with the advent of computers because whoever can make the computers slaves is going to take all the surplus unless you can have a much different way of you know, dividing the proceeds. Mm-hmm. So, and that's really not going to help and people are going to start resenting the government more and more and people who have the populist speeches and whatnot are going to be really appealing to those masses. Mm, clearly you've thought about that quite a bit i appreciate that explanation <laughs> thank you so in closing what recommendations would you have for people from the west who would like to visit turkey Well, number one, Turkey is a fantastic country to visit and it's pretty safe. So one of the things I I had an experience with was when I was at Stanford, one of my professors had a conference in Istanbul and you guys had the Gulf War over in Baghdad, which is like 3,000 miles away from Istanbul. But these guys canceled their conference because they were scared. Mm. So there's this, you know, irrational fear about like Middle East and Turkey and whatnot, which is something that people should get over, number one. Number two, it's like extremely cheap right now because the dollar actually appreciated over Turkish lira by almost like 30, 40%. Everything is going to be amazingly cheap, you know, if you're actually earning dollars. So that's the second. But the third and most important is, actually, if you look at the center of gravity of the world, it's actually in Turkey. So it's where basically East meets West. So if you go to Turkey and you start from the, all the way to the west to the east, you'll see the transition from a western culture all the way to a very, very eastern culture. And the transition is like really interesting to see with a lot of heritage all dating back, as you said, all the way to 11,000 BC. You'll see the first cathedral. You'll see the first ever university, first agricultural land, among many, many other things that you know Turkey actually has, but we have a really hard time uh, trying to promote that kind of stuff. Mm, I, maybe you could make some money by offering small tour guides of your country. Uh, yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. Right. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time today. And like I say, I'm going to put your bio and links so that people can follow you on social media and see what amazing work you're up to in Turkey. And is there any way that we can help to support you? Please like pay attention to what's going on in Turkey. And it's because Turkey is like one of the most prominent countries in the world and it is one of the leaders in the Middle East. So whatever happens in Turkey, 
if it becomes more democratic, that's much better for the world. Turkey is very, very relevant. So we would like you guys to really support the movements that actually try to promote democracy. It doesn't really have to be political parties. It could be NGOs and whatnot. And also just, you know, send happy thoughts. So uh, I, I hope, you know, we'll be able to you know, create some change in Turkey. And this doesn't just have to happen in Turkey. There are a lot of countries that actually fall prey to populist, uh, you know, speeches. I mean, U.S. is another example for that. So... Uh, we should, you know, help each other out to, you know, create a more prosperous world. I couldn't agree with you more. Tylan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it as well. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so I'm welcome. Cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.